turn in our books of praise to Lord's Day 15. Lord's Day 15. Where we continue to go through the Apostles' Creed, studying the works of Christ. Lord's Day 15. What do you confess when you say that he suffered? During all the time he lived on earth, but especially at the end, Christ bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. Thus, by his suffering, as the only atoning sacrifice, he has redeemed our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtained for us the grace of God, righteousness, and eternal life. Though innocent, Christ was condemned by an earthly judge, and so he freed us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. Does it have a special meaning that Christ was crucified and did not die in a different way? Yes. Thereby I am assured that he took upon himself the curse which lay on me, for a crucified one was cursed by God. So far... Beloved in the Lord, let's approach the teachings of the suffering and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Let's approach them with the mind of a first century person for a moment. It gives us a renewed wonder at what God did. In Jesus Christ. Let us for a moment remember the shock of realization that God has taken on flesh not just to be a man, but to be the suffering servant of Isaiah, to bear the mockery of the nations, to bear our shame our sin, and our curse. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. No one expected a savior like this. They should have known. Jesus makes clear the scriptures point to his death and resurrection. All the apostles tell us that the scriptures foretold what Jesus had come to do. But at the same time, they recognized the surprising nature of what God had done through Christ. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians 2. I came to you, brothers, not with lots of lofty words and wisdom, but knowing nothing but Christ crucified. And this was something that if the rulers of this age had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul reflects in his own life the surprising suffering of Christ, something that the Corinthians are also grappling with. How does that apply to us? How do we have the mind of Christ? The wisdom of suffering, of strength through weakness, can only be found in the wisdom that is from above. If the world had understood that, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. So I bring you the word of the Lord under the theme, 
God prepared a salvation that no one could imagine. We'll first see a suffering Messiah, second, a condemned Messiah, and third, a cursed Messiah. Each point focusing on each question from the catechism. The catechism doesn't just focus on the physical sufferings of Jesus, but on his whole state as he enters into the wrath of God. During all the time he lived on earth, but especially at the end, Christ bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the human race. Christ's body and soul bore this wrath. During all the time he lived on earth, this can be seen in the healings that Christ accomplished among his people. Here he was fighting against the effects of sin, the death that's working in us all. That's why his touch is so often described in the Gospels. There's a transfer from the healed to the healer. Matthew 8, upon reporting some of the healings Jesus accomplished, says this. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Christ entered under the law. And he bore the punishment for the law. That's from the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He was taking the pain, the sin, the evil of the world on himself. Then we have the painful episodes between Christ and his disciples where he's not heard or understood by them, where little flashes of enlightenment quickly turn into darkness again in the minds of the disciples. And this culminates on the evening of the Passover. Christ calls his disciples to watch and pray with him in the garden and they fall asleep. And there in that garden, we see the suffering of Christ deepen. There his very sweat became like great drops of blood. So great was his suffering at the thought of what he was called to go through. And Psalm 69 brings out the mental anguish that Jesus went through, the shame he would bear before the world. I made sackcloth my clothing. I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit at the gate and the drunkards make songs about me. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Here's the mental anguish of Jesus, and we can see on top of that, from the reports in the Gospels, the physical anguish, the scourging, the crown of thorns, the exhaustion, the excruciating pain of the cross itself. From Psalm 22, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. They count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. 
and to the people of Israel. This was shocking. A stumbling block, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. Foolishness to the Gentiles should take the time to take in the wonder of it all. God came to suffer in the flesh. Israel was looking for a Messiah, an anointed one, a king who would come to save the people of God, someone who would inaugurate the kingdom of God. And now they are at the cross. There's the sign above his head, the king of the Jews. And what a king, hanging, bloodied, emaciated, naked. Is that your king? The crucified God. But if the Jews had understood the Old Testament, they would have understood that a king had to suffer in order to gain dominion, especially in the context of sin in the world. David had to spend his time in the wilderness before he received the glory of kingship. Moses had to suffer the ignominy of exile before he came back and was used powerfully by God to redeem the people of Israel. And of course, even more clearly, the servant of Isaiah's prophecy had to bear the sins of the nation before God's people could be renewed. The cross must come before the crown. But Christ also do, is also doing something in this suffering. He's, just not, he's not just acting for himself. It's in the pain and the shame and the suffering throughout his life that he redeems us. He pays the punishment that we deserved. It's in it's in the suffering, and especially as it culminates in his sacrifice, that God buys, God redeems his holy people. God accomplishes victory through humility. And you see, it's in the cross, it's the struggle on the cross before his death, That's where the victory of Christ is accomplished. He's obedient unto death. It's in that struggle where the enemy is defeated. The resurrection is the declaration that Christ is victorious. It can only happen if Christ wins on the cross. If the cross becomes an emblem of victory. The victory was in accomplishing the mission that God had sent him to do. We go back to Matthew 8. He bore our diseases. He bore our sins. 2 Corinthians 5 refers to the Lord's sacrifice as a sin offering. The cross takes away our sins as far as east is from west. It's where God accomplishes victory. So why is it so important to continue to reflect on the suffering of Christ? The suffering is accomplished. We also know that a focus on the cross can be overdone and that it almost excludes the other works of Christ. 
the Middle Ages, for example, the primary focus of people's piety was often the crucifix, the picture of Christ on the cross in his moment of suffering. It's almost as if they had forgotten that Christ is now at the right hand of God. He has been exalted. We don't need to put him back on the cross. At the same time, the Bible spends a lot of time on the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And not only, not only in the Gospels, but all the suffering in the Old Testament that foretells the suffering of Job, the sufferings we read in Psalm 69 and Psalm 22, suggesting that it's important, an important thing for our minds to contemplate. This is a wisdom from God that the world does not understand. We have the words of Paul. Those are the words of Paul. Not just in 1 Corinthians 2, but in all of 1 Corinthians and arguably 2 Corinthians as well. One could say that all of 1 and 2 Corinthians in their entirety are a re-evaluation of all our values in light of the cross. The fact that God chose to use the sufferings that belong to a slave to accomplish our redemption. What does that say about us who are united with Christ? In the world's eyes, if they don't understand the wisdom of God, they're not going to see the wisdom of God's people. There's an old piece of graffiti they found in Rome mocking a certain Christian. Somebody drew a donkey-headed man on a cross and wrote, this is Dionysius's God. The idea that Christians worshipped somebody who had died the death of a slave was ridiculous to the Roman and the Greek mind. Let's continue to contemplate this point. We are connected to a God who wins through suffering and shame. We're connected to a God who loves to show his power through weakness. That's why we continue to contemplate the wounds that our Lord Jesus received. That's why we read about his suffering, the suffering of the saints that foretold of his suffering and the suffering of those who followed him. This is how God brings victory. And that brings us to our second point, a condemned Messiah. So it's not just any suffering. It is suffering before the authorities of this world, the rulers of that age. If the rulers of this world had understood this, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. We go back to that point. Understood what? The secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. God decreed the suffering and crucifixion of Christ so that he, that he might bring many sons to glory. It's the amazing thing. All this suffering was for us, for our glory. It was his love for us. He didn't have to be exalted. He had all the glory that belonged to the Father in heaven before he came and took on our flesh.
And part of that plan, that plan from the foundation of the world, was that Christ should suffer under Pontius Pilate. It's a very interesting detail in the Apostles' Creed. At one level, it simply places Christ at a certain time of history. It ensures that we understand that Christ did actually live and die and rise again. This is not just a story to give us psychological help in our lives. As if we are redeemed through the idea of Christ's death and resurrection. Rather, Christ truly and concretely through his body and blood transforms us through his spirit of power. And that is founded on an actual death and resurrection at a specific time in history under Pontius Pilate. But this also tells us something else about God's plan. Even though not all, even though not all the Jews thought so, Pontius Pilate was the legitimate ruler of Israel at that time. You see, Jesus wasn't taken out back and taken care of by powerful enemies. Herod didn't hire an operative to poison him. He didn't die because a couple thugs robbed him and left him for dead. No, he was condemned in a legitimate court of law. God had foretold this in Daniel. Four empires would come and rule over the world as God prepared the ground for Christ's coming. And so Pontius Pilate had legitimacy as one established by God. But Jesus is also condemned by Jewish law. Jewish law. If you pay attention to the trial narratives of Jesus in the Gospels, Jesus is condemned by Pontius Pilate and by the Jewish leadership. He is condemned by both Jew and Gentile. First, he comes before the high priest and is condemned there. And then he's brought to the seat of Pontius Pilate. First, the seat of Moses, then the seat of Pontius Pilate. We see the injustice of the situation. We can think of Psalm 82, where God calls out his people for their unjust rule. But instead of instantly destroying them, which is his right to do so, he shows his love for them in the most surprising way possible. The Jews claimed to love righteousness. The Romans took pride in their justice system and their fairness, even though by today's standards we would see them as cruel, they saw themselves as eminently fair. And the death of Jesus Christ shows the farce of it all. By resurrecting his son, God demonstrates that the men who are actually condemned are those who condemned him. It was important that Jesus be condemned by legitimate authorities. As Romans 13 tells us, the authorities are set up by God, established by God. And Christ is clearly condemned by the legitimate authorities of both the church, the high priests and Pharisees, and state, Pontius Pilate and Herod. He is condemned for claiming to be king. Church and state join in proclaiming that there is no king but Caesar. The anointed one of God must die. The world unites against the anointed one. 
It is God's law established through Moses, which gives legitimacy to Christ's punishment. God uses that law as a way to transfer my sin to the Lord of glory. Again, the moment of triumph is the moment of condemnation. Right? Just as the suffering is the moment of triumph, so the moment of condemnation is the moment of triumph. As Psalm 69 says, The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. All the world is found guilty in Christ's death. After all, all our sin is a reproach to God. The Jews, the Gentiles, even the disciples cannot stand beside Jesus. Yet Jesus is able to pray on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they did not understand. They didn't understand the, the wisdom of God. Christ's own death becomes the basis for the salvation of his murderers. And when we understand that our sin is put on the cross of Christ as well, our sin is punished on the cross of Christ as well, we know that we put him there as well. So we have a choice. Come and die with Christ or seek to save our lives. Just as the world did not understand Christ, it doesn't understand those who follow Christ. Again, if they had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Again, this is the wonder of the mystery of what God is doing. In the condemnation of Christ, through the rulers of this world, God frees us. The condemnation is the victory, for to be condemned was the very thing that Christ came to do. Put your sin on him. Crucify your sin on his cross. It's there for you. The grace is already offered to you. The work is done. Believers can experience freedom from sin, from the guilt that can weigh us down as we seek to obey our Father. And that brings us to our final point. A cursed Messiah. Lord's Day 15 ends by pointing to the significance of the way Christ died. We've seen the necessity of his suffering. We've seen the necessity of his death under the law by legitimate authorities. But there's also the matter of the way he died. The cross was a deeply shameful death. For the first century or two, maybe even longer, the Christians did not use the cross as their symbol it was so attached to the shame. The Romans designed it as a death for slaves, rebellious slaves, and for traitors. Think again of those words from Psalm 69. The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. God is telling us something. This is how sinful man will treat God if he is in their power. People who leave the Christian faith will often attack the Christian faith, seeking to prove that they are somehow more moral than God is. This is the result of that rejection. As Hebrews says, they trample underfoot the Son of God. 
This is the shame that Christ suffered for us. It gets worse. Not only was the cross a shameful thing for the Romans, but it was also a shameful thing for the Jews. Cursed is the one who dies on a tree, says the Old Testament. Those are God's words to the Jewish people. When you die on a tree, you're stuck between heaven and earth. It's a false exaltation. That's why it was thought to be such a fitting death for a slave or a traitor. You want to lift yourself up? We'll lift you up. These were men who falsely exalted themselves, and so they were lifted up as a mockery. They had reached for something they did not deserve, and they received the mockery for that. There was also the sense that both heaven and earth were rejecting these men in that false exaltation. They were cursed. And this goes back to the original sin of man, grasping at the throne of God. He wanted to be like God. We all want to claim that we're the ones who can control life. Absalom is one of the men in Israelite history who receives this curse. He's the son of David, and he seeks to take his father's throne. He is given the proper death for his grasping pride. He ends up hanging on a tree with javelins through his body. And so in God's providence, he bears the curse for his false exaltation, false self-exaltation. Christ was the king, and yet he bore that for us. We were cursed in Adam. We still want to be like God. We want to be in control of our own lives. We don't want God to interfere with us. We think we have a better idea of things, of the things we need than God does. Like his suffering, like his condemnation, the curse was also the moment of victory. Christ himself foretells us in John 11. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. John adds, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. The moment of shame is the moment of exaltation. The moment of the curse is the moment of blessing for God's people. Here on the cross, the ruler of the world is cast out, and Christ is made our king. Ruler over all principalities and powers. At the moment of the cross, that was still to be proved through the resurrection and death of Jesus. But it's in his death that he redeems us, frees us, and takes away the curse which lay upon me. Let's wonder at this gift of God. The wise men of this world don't understand. It doesn't make sense. Jesus himself says, I thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. You need to be a little child, humble and full of faith, to look at the bloody cross and see a king there. All glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen.
let's come to our God with singing again from hymn 25, verses 6 and 7.